The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, everyone. We can go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, Today we're reading all of chapter 1 of Leviticus, and that can be found on page 76 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." For his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds. Then, it sh- then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves and pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar on the r- and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Leviticus 1. Well, uh, for the Lord, the rings, fans among us. I feel like I'm having a Theoden moment. Um, If you remember uh, when he was standing at the top of the keep there at Helm's Deep, staring into the abyss. Of the Urukai, um, what does he say? So it begins, right? And so it begins as we launch into the book of Leviticus. Out of sheer curiosity, show of hands, who has heard, listened to a sermon series on the book of Leviticus before? 
All right. I'm seeing about three people, maybe. The brave ones, okay? Uh, beautiful. Uh, no, another question show of, uh, out of sheer curiosity. How many of us tend to read a little too fast through the book of Leviticus in our daily Bible reading plan so we can scorch through it a little, little too quick, a little bit quicker than, than normal? Yeah. Those of us who raise your hands, you're honest in church, and those of you who need to repent right now who did not raise your hands because uh, you're lying in church. And Jesus, I'm not sure he's cool with that. Um, so here we are. What we're going to do, I'm going to pray here in a minute. Um, my hope is to, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to experience what we read as part of our liturgy this morning. Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist prays this prayer, Lord God, would you open my eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. According to the psalmist, it is entirely possible for the redeemed of the Lord to not have to stifle a yawn and scorch through the law to get to the more important things of the Scriptures. There are wonderful things to behold in the law of the Lord. We're going to see this this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the way He's led me this morning, to preach this morning, um, my hope is to be able to be used as an instrument in the hands of our God to be able to bring that prayer to fruition. In order to help us do that, I titled our sermon this morning, A Good News Invitation. If you want to translate that, well, you could say the title of our sermon this morning is just simply called A Gospel Invitation. And yes, I am using that to describe the first seven chapters of Leviticus, which describe the various sacrifices the Old Testament people of God were to offer to Yahweh. It is truly a good news invitation that we have buried before us, a good news invitation we often miss because we want to scorch through Leviticus and we don't stop just to linger in the text. The main idea that we're going to see this morning, you'll hear me say this a couple of times, what we're doing is we're encapsulating the first seven chapters all about the sacrifices, the sacrifices as they were to relate to the people of God, the back end of six and seven were addressed to the priests and how they were to approach the sacrifices of God. We're going to encapsulate all of that by preaching Leviticus 1. We're going to summarize this idea of what the sacrifices were about by coming to this main idea, recognizing that God's holiness requires atonement. We're going to talk about what that means. God's holiness requires atonement, and praise be to God, He graciously provides the means for that atonement. So God is going to require something and then by his grace, by his mercy, provide for us the very thing that we need, the means for atonement. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask that the power of the Holy Spirit that he would demonstrate for us his power, his strength, the preaching of the word, so that we would truly behold the wonderful things from his law as we see our need for a Savior here in Leviticus chapter 1. So let's pray, and then we'll turn to our text. Father, our aim is to see you glorified. Christ, our aim is to see you high and lifted up. You're not in the limelight. You, you are the limelight. We want to see you magnified and receive the worth 
and the glory you are worthy to receive. So Spirit, I'm asking that you would use me as an instrument in your hands so that we might truly behold wonderful things, glorious things from your law. Fill me, Spirit, I ask. Use this time so that when all is said and done, we might walk away being able to say, we have met with the living God this morning as we considered his good news invitation to us and that we might walk away this morning not the same as when we arrived. All because our faith has come to rest on the power of God, Christ himself, as a result of the word of God preached. Lord, help. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. So here we are. We're diving into the book of Leviticus. If you've been keeping an eye on Slack, there's been several helps that I've pushed out this past week. You know that we're going to be in this book for about three months. Some of the sections are going to slow down. Some of the sections we're going to do in large chunks like this that make sense. And today we're looking, in a sense, at chapters 1 through 7 through the lens of Leviticus chapter 1. And as we dive into this series, we must begin by recognizing that this book of the Bible comes off as more than a little weird to the majority of us. Not only does this book have a weird name that sounds a little too much like a pair of our favorite jeans, but it's also filled with rules, it's filled with commands, it's filled with laws that we are sure were really important to a lot of people a long time ago. But for us, Leviticus and all that it encapsulates just seems entirely disconnected from the world that we live in today. Most of us scorch through Leviticus because Leviticus seems to have nothing to do with Monday morning. And so we blow right past it. We don't sit and we don't pause. We see no practical need to know about things like sacrifices, to know about things like ordaining priests or ritual purity, the blood of bulls and goats, clean and unclean animals, skin disease, mildew, bodily discharges. These are simply not the realities we deal with on a daily basis, and all of this helps to explain why when you say the word Leviticus, immediately what conjures up in our mind is just this. It's a book that just has a bad reputation. It's that book that you just read through really fast. Sadly, for most Christians, the book of Leviticus is unknown and far too often unopened. Or if we are willing to brave it, as we've said, it's that one book in our reading plan that when we go through in a year, we will blaze through at light speed because anything in our daily reading has to be better than yet another law about another sacrifice that seems to have nothing to do with my daily life. Yet, despite all of this of what we just said and despite what we may continue to believe because you're less than convinced from what I've just said, Leviticus, we need to understand, is absolutely fundamental to understanding your life and my life in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolutely fundamental. You cannot, 
You cannot persuade me otherwise. It's fundamental to understanding our God and his holiness. It's fundamental to understanding actually his great, merciful, and gracious gospel. Really, if you think about Leviticus of this this book, so much else in your Bible, the other 65 make no sense apart from the one. When you read through the scriptures, these ideas and phrases and themes you bump into, such as sacrifice and atonement, law and grace, sin and obedience, defilement and cleansing, priesthood and temple curtains being torn in two, being a good news thing that we read about as recent as last week in the celebration of Christ's resurrection from the dead. None of these gospel ingredients make sense without Leviticus because all of these things find themselves where? In the book of Leviticus, which is why it is an absolutely tragic mistake to overlook this book. Now, if you wanted to zoom out, and if you wanted to hang a single word over the book of Leviticus, if you wanted to describe the theme, what we could say is this. Holiness, holiness is the main theme of Leviticus. And it can be summed up in the single verse found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, where Yahweh says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As a people and as individuals, Israel is prone to sin. They're unholy, they're disobedient, they're rebellious. And because this is true, the king... The key question that hangs over the entire book of Leviticus, if you wanted to take that theme of holiness and put it into a question and ask, what question is the book of Leviticus trying to answer? What problem is it trying to solve? What you could say is this. The question is, how does a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? Or if you want to flop it, how does an unholy people dwell in a relationship with a holy God? How does that happen? Because the two truths on the table are immutable. They're unchangeable. God is holy. Man is unholy. God can have nothing to do with sin. Man is shot through to the very core of his soul, stained with sin. So how does holiness and unholiness reside? How does nothing to do with sin? And I am a sinner who sins. How does communion and relationship and fellowship and presence work out in the relationship between unholy man and a holy God. That is the question that lingers over these 27 chapters. The answer to the question, how does a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people, is this. See Leviticus. Leviticus. That's where we find the answer to this question. Now, one of God's attributes, as I just said, is that he's holy, perfectly holy, can have nothing to do with sin, Yet the problem of humanity, an old preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones would describe it this way, the plight of humanity. 
the sickness that invades every man, woman, child that's ever been born, lives right now, and will be born is that we are sinners who sin. There is not a righteous man, woman, child on earth who does good and never sins. Someone who can stand up and say, I am clean and without sin. This human being does not exist. Thus, if a holy God is to dwell in the midst of an unholy people, then somehow people's sins must be removed. Somehow the people must be made holy in the sight of God. And what we see revealed in Leviticus is the way for God and sinner to be reconciled is through sacrifices offered for sins. And as we will see, this truth is what ultimately makes Leviticus a good news invitation for sinners. Now, as we get ready to dive into the text, it's extremely important to remember something. It's extremely important to remember that the book of Leviticus is the sequel to the book of Exodus. Thank you very much. I do have an MDiv, and I did learn something in all my seminary training. Well, of course, Captain Obvious, Leviticus comes after Exodus, so of course, Leviticus comes after. There's a sequel, there's a prequel, so it doesn't take a lot of smarts to be able to recognize that Leviticus is the sequel to the book of Exodus. But I'm not saying this in an attempt to be Captain Obvious. I'm saying this because you have to remember your Bible. You need to know the context. You need to know that the book of Exodus is a book in which we find the source material which makes verse 1 of Leviticus 1 nothing but pure and absolute grace upon grace. You go into Leviticus and you begin to read that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And if you don't know the book that came before this particular verse, this looks like innocuous data that someone's just throwing out there. But if you do know the book of Exodus, what you then know is that the fact that Yahweh himself is calling to Moses and speaking to him from the tent of meeting, what you know is this interaction right here is nothing but pure and absolute grace upon grace. What this is in verse 1 is a grace conversation. That's what we see as point number one of our sermon this morning. It is a grace conversation, a gracious conversation, a conversation that is saturated with the aroma of unmerited favor. What you're meant to do is to put the nose into the text and you're supposed to take a deep inhale and the fragrance flavor of the text is one of mercy. Mercy that is abounding, mercy that is meant to astound us that despite what took place in the book of Exodus, Yahweh is calling, Yahweh is speaking, Yahweh is meeting with a people such as this. Remember what took place in Exodus. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And once they were out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea to deliver them again. They are a redeemed people. If you remember, he then led the people of God to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with this people, saying 
to this redeemed people, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will indeed keep my covenant, here it is, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people hear this from Yahweh, and they respond to him with shouts of, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. Very optimistic only to trip, stumble, and fumble almost immediately. Yahweh instructs Moses, have Israel build me a tabernacle. He's building a mobile Sinai. He's going to meet with him on Sinai, and then he's going to come and inhabit the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and it's going to be like a mobile Sinai that's going to go around with the people so that they can continue to meet with him. But if you know Exodus, it's not even before the covenant stipulations have been given and gone into effect. It's not even before the tabernacle is built that the Israelites sin against the Lord by worshiping a golden calf. End of Exodus 24, Moses goes up on the mountain. Then there's those chapters 25 to 6 to 7 to 8 to 9, 30, 31, which is all about building the tabernacle. The beginning of chapter 32 is people going around like, man, Moses has been gone a little while. Aaron, will you please help us out? They rip off all their gold. He fashions it into an idol, and then it goes south really fast. Aaron's making excuses to Moses. Hey, I don't know what happened. We just threw the gold into the fire, and this calf just sort of magically came out. And you're, I mean, anyone reading this is like, mm, mm. how many of us have tried to do that? How many of us have suffered through our children trying to pull that stunt? It really, the, co- the chocolate on your face, and you're trying to tell me you aren't eating the cookie. No, the cookie just magically popped into my mouth, Mom and Dad. I have no idea how it got there. We, we all know how, how it got there little one. Yahweh's righteous response, it's one of the most shocking verses I think in this account, is to let his wrath burn hot against Israel and consume them. But Moses intercedes, Yahweh relents, and it culminates in what I would argue to be one of the greatest revelations of our God, if you remember, as he passes before Moses and reveals himself to Moses. Through these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord then renews the covenant. The tabernacle is built. And Exodus, if you go to the very last verses of Exodus chapter 40, it ends with the tabernacle built. Yahweh himself, the glory fills the tabernacle, but it fills the tabernacle. And what is written is that as a result of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter in to the tent. Then you roll right out of those verses into Leviticus chapter 1, where the Lord calls to Moses, speaks to him from this tent, saying to Moses, you need to speak to the people of Israel, verse 2, and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Friends, when you get to verses 1 and 2 in Leviticus chapter 1, 
what you are to see is that this is nothing shy of grace upon grace. The holy king of heaven is dwelling in the midst of this unholy people, people who after their very quick rebellion, their very quick disobedience, find themselves on the receiving end of the unmerited favor of this God. Our God is holy. Hebrews tells us that he is a consuming fire, yet here he is merciful. Here he is gracious. Here he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Doing what? Making a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. That is what you need to see in the opening gambit of Leviticus 1 when he's talking to Moses and saying, this is what you need to lay out before him, a God who has every right and to be just, not unjust, but to be just, to consume this people for their disobedience, for their sin, for their idolatry, for their rebellion, for their transgression, has every right to consume them with his wrath, says, I will not do this, but I will instead, by grace, by my mercy, show them how they might live and dwell with me. What is that? Mercy. grace. It's love. It's faithfulness on the part of a covenant-keeping God. How are they going to be reconciled? By coming to them, Yahweh provides the way for unholy people to enter into his holy presence. You see, the sacrificial system is God's good news invitation for people to come and meet with him. Listen, God's holiness requires atonement. That's what we see in point number two, verses three and four. God's holiness requires atonement. You see this when Yahweh says to Moses, starting in verse three, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, notice all the he shalls, the shall language there. He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, what's unfolding before the people of God is this right now. As they would have been on the receiving end of hearing these things, Yahweh speaking to Moses, Moses being that priestly mediator, now relaying these things to the people. What's unfolding before them is this. Yahweh is solving the Leviticus problem right before their eyes. He's instructing his people to bring him certain sacrifices that are going to satisfy him and atone for their sins. And that's exactly what these unholy, sinful people need. This is what we see all through the first seven chapters of Leviticus when you read about all the sacrifices that were laid out before the people. But among the various sacrifices described in Leviticus 1 through 7, the most important was the burnt offering because the purpose of this offering was to, verse 4, make atonement 
for the sinner, to make atonement for the worshiper. Atonement needed to be made, and it specifically says the burnt offering was the sacrifice that would accomplish this. The offering, if you read in your Bible, some of your Bibles might say this, this offering, this burnt offering sacrifice was sometimes called the whole burnt offering. A little adjective on the front end, whole, because literally the whole animal would be laid on the altar except for the hide in order to be consumed in its entirely. The whole thing is going to be burnt up. There was nothing kept back. There was nothing to be given out to the priests or the people to be eaten or anything. The whole thing was to be given on there, and it was a sign of total dedication to Yahweh. In essence, when the worshiper was to come and to give a whole burnt offering, it was the way that the worshiper could say this. Listen, in the consuming of this animal in its entirety on the altar, I recognize something about my Self, I recognize I deserve to be wholly consumed for my sin, but in giving this animal as my substitute, I'm banking on the promise of God himself that it, this animal, this sacrifice shall be, will be accepted on my behalf to make atonement for me. There is a promise buried into the language there at the end of verse 4. The shall be, the will be language. That's promise language. God is saying you will have atonement made for you in the substitute sacrifice that you bring so that atonement can be made for you. And the idea of what's going on with atonement comes down to this, the English word atonement. It's a word we don't really use a lot. And so it's sort of a foreign concept to us. But the English word atonement is formed by a combination of three words. At, one, and meant. At, one, meant. Or at, tone, meant. So this means that at one meant or at tone meant refers to reconciliation. There's a reconciliation idea going on. When two parties like sinful me and the holy God are able to come together, becoming at one with one another because at tone meant has been made. Again, sin. Sin had separated humanity from a holy God. Sin separates us from a holy God. But now a way has been made for sinners to be one again with this holy God through the sacrifice of this burnt offering. Sinners need, it says, sinners need atonement to be made for them. We need purification from sin as well as ransom from the Lord's judgment for our sin. And in the burnt offering, Yahweh looks to Moses and says, Moses, you need to go tell the people that in the burnt offering, this substitute sacrifice will accomplish this very thing. It will accomplish the atonement they need so that sinners, unholy, rebellious, full of transgression, might dwell with God and he with them. Thus, the need for atonement.
you need to have your sins atoned for. I need my sins to be atoned for. And praise be to our great God that what he requires, atonement, he graciously provides the means for. Starting in verse 5, that's exactly what we discover. God graciously provides the means for atonement. That's the third and final point of a sermon this morning. God graciously provides the means for atonement. If you go and you look at verse 3 in your copy of Scripture, he says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, talking about a bull. If you scan your eyes over to verse 10, it says, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, such as sheep or goats. Scan your eyes down to verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. What's going on here is this. If you were poor and you couldn't afford a bull, you had a way to bring your offering. If you were more of the middle class persuasion, you had a way to bring your offering. If you were one who was rich enough and you had the means to be able to bring a bull as a sacrifice without blemish, then you had a way to be made right with God, to have atonement made for you. The point in bulls from the herd, sheep or goats from the flock, burnt offering of birds, the point is no one, absolutely no one, was to be held back from worshiping the Lord and re removed from the promise that you can have atonement made for your sins. See, some of us find ourselves to be pretty rich in sin. We have no problem recognizing I am a wealthy sinner. I mean, I'm not saying you're a sinner with a lot of cash in the bank. What you're saying is you're rich in sin. Like you know yourself enough to know how rich you are. Some of us might consider ourselves to be maybe poor in sin. You know, there's like that one or two thing that continues to trip us up. The point is you have sin. And we need our sin to be atoned for. And there are two things that God has always required for the forgiveness of that sin. Confession and sacrifice. Confession of that sin. I am a sinner. Or we own it. We look at the man or the woman in the mirror and we point at the mirror, ultimately pointing at ourselves saying, you sir, you ma'am are a sinner. I'm confessing this. I am not lying to myself. I am being truthful with me. I am a sinner shot through and through. And then you are one half of the way to understanding what God has always required for the forgiveness of sin because not only is there to be confession of sin, there is to be sacrifice for sin. And in the burnt offering, when a sinner, a worshiper, coming before a holy God recognizes this. I am a sinner. I need atonement made for me. 
I am confessing, and I need a sacrifice. That's what the worshiper is doing as they take the bull, the sheep, the goat, the bird. They come before the altar, and they're banking on the promise that if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness while simultaneously holding to the promise that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin has a price. From the beginning of creation, God laid down a universal truth. Sin leads to death. Not sometimes, every time. Sin leads to death. And for the Israelites, their sin could either lead to their death or if they offered the sacrifice as the substitute in their place, the animal could die in their place. Thus, someone could go and take a male bull or they could take that sheep or that goat or that turtle dove or that pigeon, one without blemish, and offer it as a burnt offering so that he may be accepted before the Lord, it says. He would then lay his hand on the head. And the idea behind that word lay isn't like, you know, someone coming up and like, boop, just barely touching it. It's the idea of they're they're coming up and they're like, they're pressing. They're laying their hand. They're pressing their hand down on the head of this animal. And in so doing, what's happening is they are establishing a connection between the sacrifice and the person who is coming to offer this animal. In that way of laying, pressing their hand down on the head, it was the way that the guilty man's sin was transferred onto the innocent animal so that when the animal died, that animal was taking the penalty for the sin that was transferred to it, thus dying the worshiper's death. The death the worshiper deserves to die for their sin. Then the worshiper, it says, is the one who kills the animal. And in response, the priests would then spring into action at the killing of the animal, coming with a basin to catch the blood as it's gushing out of the neck in order to take that blood and come and throw it against the sides of the altar, going all the way around, throwing that blood Against there. Then notice in verse 6, it says that the worshiper then had to flay or skin the entire animal. The worshiper had to cut it into pieces and then wash its entrails and legs with water, many would say, so that dung and any kind of defilement could be completely removed from this animal sacrifice. Only then did the priest take that animal. Throat cut, skinned, entrails removed and washed to place that animal on the altar until it was completely consumed as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, I want you to just stop and stoke your imagination at the scene. You're a sinner. Unholy, you recognize that I need to have atonement made for me. I need something to die in my place so that I might be ransomed from the judgment that I deserve. I am unclean, and I need my sins to be purified, washed clean by something. So you take your bowl. You bring it before the entrance 
a tent of meeting before the Lord. And there you are with the knife in your hand as you begin to lay into the throat of this animal. It's a visceral thing. If you've ever seen an animal slaughtered, it doesn't go quietly. It's screaming, it's yelling, it's crying out, it's bucking as the blade lays into its throat. As its neck is laid open, blood is gushing out. So there you are with hands covered with blood. This priest springs into action. If you know what the garments of the priests are, the priests are wearing white linen. This is one sacrifice. Imagine thousands of sacrifices. Their sleeves would be stained with the dripping blood of this animal. The smell of blood is in the air. The sight of blood is everywhere as they're taking it and they're throwing it up against the altar. There you are flaying the skin off the body. There you are ripping open the carcass so that you can clear out the guts and the entrails. You don't want any of the dung or the excrement on it, so you're washing off that stench. You're washing off that filth. And when you're doing this, you're standing there hopefully drawing a couple of conclusions. My sin is deadly. My sin is deadly. My unholiness before a holy God is repulsive, like the stench of the entrails and the excrement that I was scraping out of that carcass. That repulsive smell reminds me. My unholiness is repulsive before a holy God. My rebellion, my disobedience, my transgression against this holy God is costly. This innocent animal is dying in my place. I'm the one who deserves to be de- to die, who deserves to be consumed. Then multiply the scene you've just imagined in your mind daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decade after decade after century after century, multiplied by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. The only proper conclusion to be able to draw at that site is that God himself was providing a graphic, gory, vivid demonstration of the fact that your sin leads to death. But what we must not forget in all of it is that God instituted these sacrifices not for the removal of sin. God instituted these sacrifices for the reminder of sin. God instituted these sacrifices to impress upon the hearts of his people that they needed to be saved from their sins. If they are not saved, they will die. So he did this to show them ultimately the way of salvation and the way he ultimately did this was by pointing forward to their need for a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior who was to come. You see, just like the Israelites, all of us have sinned and as such, our sin leads to death. Therefore, somebody will die because of your sin. Somebody's going to die because of your sin. It has to happen. The soul, Ezekiel says, that sins shall die. It's got to happen. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. 
It's got to happen. Somebody will die because of your sin. Either we will die eternally for our sin and be separated from God forever, justly so because we are the sinners after all, or, or the good news invitation is this, a sacrifice will die in your place for your sin. Those are the options that Leviticus is laying before us. And the good news invitation of Leviticus is that what this book foreshadows, God ultimately provides in the sending of the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices, namely the Son of God who took on flesh so that by his sacrifice we might know the removal of sin, Hebrews 9.26. You see, the burnt offering reminds us We're meant to look into Leviticus 1 at all these sacrifices, and we're meant to be reminded that God has said there is a sacrifice that will please him. There is a sacrifice that will please him. A sacrifice that promise will be accepted on my behalf to make atonement for my sin. And friends, the New Testament screams in our face, Jesus is that sacrifice. Burnt offerings were physically unblemished, but Christ's offering is totally unblemished for you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. Burnt offerings brought temporary atonement, but Christ's offering brings permanent atonement for God put Christ Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. Romans 3, verse 25. Burnt offerings brought temporary payment for sin, but Christ's offering brings permanent cleansing from all sin for the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. With burnt offerings, blood poured out many times over and over and over and over and over again, but with Christ offering blood poured out of his body once for all. For when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. When Jesus was on the cross and said, it is finished, he said what he meant and he meant what he said. This whole sacrificial system is done. I have accomplished what needs to be accomplished. Burnt offerings were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the apostle Paul tells us that it was Christ who gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, in light of all this, I'm arguing something that the only proper response in light of what we see is to come and obey John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him. Behold him. What are you beholding in your day-to-day life? What captures your attention? What holds your gaze? What captures your heart? What do you behold? The invitation 
good news found in Leviticus springs forward and bursts out of the prophet, the last human prophet, to come in a long chain of prophets, John the Baptist, and he says, here's what you need to behold. Behold that sacrifice. Behold that lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him. Sinner here this morning, have you beheld him by faith? Trusting in that sacrifice. Remember, for your sin, someone's got to die. Death has to come. The gospel options before you are this. I will either go to my grave trusting in myself, and not only will you physically die, but then you will receive judgment for your sin, and you will eternally die because you went to the grave not trusting in the substitute. Or the gospel invitation, choice number two, is to go to your grave physically dying but eternally living because you were looking to your perfect substitute, the Lamb of God who took away your sin because you were looking and trusting and banking on the promise that he and his sacrifice can and did make atonement for me. And you can close your eyes in death and open your eyes to Christ, banking on that promise. Sinner, have you beheld him by faith for your salvation? Saints among us, my encouragement would be that you are a saint because you can say, I have beheld him by faith for my salvation. My encouragement this morning would be, behold him then every day. You don't behold Jesus on that one day you got saved way back, way back yonder. You wake up and you behold him. You go to sleep, you wake up and behold him. You go to sleep, you behold him day in, day out. You eat, sleep, breathe the nourishment of beholding him, beholding the Savior. He is your sole source of life and godliness. Truly, God, help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, my argument is this. That right there is the good news invitation of Leviticus. Let's pray. Friends, we need, we desperately need the salvation offered in Christ. So Lord, come, open our eyes to see the need. Open our eyes to come to Christ. Open our eyes to behold the wonderful good news invitation of the law found here before us that we can truly know salvation for our sins, confessing sin, banking on Christ, the perfect final sacrifice. Lord, if you are working that in someone's heart right now, I'm asking that you would tune everything else out and this man, this woman would dial in and do business with you by talking, praying, seeking you, responding to the gospel invitation. Lord, for those of us who are the saints, truly born again, but struggle with what we behold, would you help us to behold the Lamb? To behold the Lamb. Not only today or in this song, but later this afternoon, late tonight, early in the morning, and every day, week, month, year, beyond. Help us to behold our Savior. Do this, King Jesus, in our hearts and lives. Why? So that you would receive the glory and so that the fame of your name would spread as Christ followers. 
go about their business beholding you into their everyday lives so that people might see a picture of Jesus in us and through us. Christ, we pray these things in your name. Amen.